Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Two music legends, both born in the month of May, Judy Collins on May Day and the late Pete Seeger on May 3rd, got together to perform one of his compositions before his passing in 2014. Because I sing this song a lot, and I'd like to have you sing it with me, if you would. Uh, this is one that, that you know, because you wrote the melody to it. Well, let me hear it. All right. And I think it's wonderful that this, this particular song, this quotation from Ecclesiastes, is such a, a well-loved quotation. does make me proud. You know, I could die tomorrow and I'd die happy in a way to think that other people were singing my songs. And next on Arts Express, we're all kind of into the future. We're all kind of playing this game as we march uneasily into the future. Young Australian actor Callan McAuliffe phones in from South Africa 
to talk about his quite unusual portrayal of a troubled Chicago artist who happens to meet virtually, quite by accident, a young woman when their landlines accidentally get crossed back then before the digital age. But the latter, as the actual theme of him and her, how relating between human beings, emotionally, romantically, or otherwise, gets redefined today online when people may no longer actually meet. McAuliffe shares thoughts on this film and this subject and his role as Leonardo DiCaprio's younger Gatsby in Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby. First, some scenes from him and her. Hello. Hello? No, man, I'm not you. I can hear you, no problem. Hello? Hello? I think our phone lines might have got crossed. Yeah, I thought I heard someone else talking. Apparently Chicago's having some issues. Wait, you're in Chicago? Yeah. I'm in Michigan. Wow. How'd that happen? I wanted to be a, an actor and a filmmaker when I was young. There's this theory about the shadow side of greatness and creativity. Take Picasso, for instance. Maybe the only way out of the darkness of his soul was to make great art, try to salvage some light. Like a mirror lets us see ourselves when we see the truth. That's interesting. It's like finding the light shining through a velvet darkness. I like that. Curious, what you look like. I don't want to say. Tell me something about you. I don't know at all. I gotta, you know. Sometimes happy is a mask that I wear. No one really knows me. How close I am to not being here anymore. I wish I could help you in some way. I just want to listen to your voice. Makes me feel safe. What if we try and meet up tomorrow? I have an idea, but it's kind of a crazy idea. Tell me. What if? When we meet, we moving forward, using all my breath. What if you're not attracted to me? What if you're not attracted to me? I hope it's you. I think it's me. Hello, this is Callan. Hi. Hello and welcome to our show. <laughs> Thanks very much. And you're in South Africa? I'm in South Africa right now, that's correct. It's, uh, I guess it's 3.30 in the afternoon. Oh, okay. And are you there for filming? Uh, uh, any work there, filming? Uh, no, in fact, I'm just uh, I'm here because I just sailed uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. And this is where we happen to pull in. So oh. I'll be coming back to... I'll be coming back to Australia shortly, but this was where the, uh, the ship docked. Oh, when you say sailing, was that like uh, a, for sport? <laughs> uh, I suppose so, in a way. It depends what you call sport, but I uh, I, I just took a 52-day a trip across uh, across the sea from Ushuaia, Argentina, via Antarctica to Cape. Oh, and, okay. uh, and it was <laughs> great fun, and it was pretty grueling, but uh, uh, in any case, I'm, back to, I'm happy to be back on the land, so yeah. it's good to be in South Africa. Okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. I'll just start asking you questions. No worries. Yeah, yeah, suck it to me. Okay. What was it about this unusual romantic relationship by telephone and sight unseen that inspired you to be part of this film and this story? I mean, in the first place, it, it was such an unusual uh, concept that, that not only would we tell a story about these two people who were trying to preserve the, the I suppose, the the faceless purity of the love they developed over the phone, but that we would then uh, attempt to to do it on the set, at least in part. Uh, and I, I was really curious to see what impact that would have on the filming process and the chemistry that the actress and I would develop. And of course, I, I didn't know who she was at the time, uh, but eventually I, I found out. Um, but it, it, it just seemed like such an extraordinary social experiment, even more than anything. Yeah. And then, and then the script that I read uh, in the beginning, I thought, thought it was so beautiful, and I, I suppose there were a number of things. But, but first and foremost, it, uh, it, it had never been done before, and we all like to be a part of something like that.
And how did you go about getting inside the head of your unnamed character to become him and to figure out how to portray him? Well, I mean, happily, uh, much of that work was done was done before I was anywhere near the project. The, the, the script was the character in the script was very fleshed out, and so I, I mostly just had to embody what was there written. But also, it's based on a true story, that of the, the director writer himself. And so uh, there was there was a lot of work that had been done just over over the decades. So it was pretty well charged before I got there. Um, and then, you know, you're cast to bring what you can to a project, and much of that's innate. So I was, uh, I guess I was, by some stroke of luck, already embodying what they needed in the audition, and they basically kept me on that track. And did you ever have such a relationship similar in any ways in the real world? For instance, an infatuation with someone you haven't actually met? <laughs> I mean, we're all, we're all pretty well drowning in, in the internet and, and whatever kind of uh, psychosocial ramifications that might have. But I can't say that I've had anything like this. But I, a number of uh, relationships I've had in the past have been long distance, which in a way is similar because much of the, much of the bond that you develop is faceless in a way, although, you know, FaceTime and that kind of thing has changed it. But in any case, much of it is at a great distance. And so I, I guess I have some experience with that sort of thing, but never to this extent, no. Mm. And what do you feel it is about the electronic and digital age that dominates lives we live in today that fuels this story in a unique way? Well, it's, it's as I was saying, that even though this is set uh, in, in prior decades and with, with the different technology, there is an analogous element to it because because we do so often communicate with people today without ever knowing who they are or what they look like or even what their real names are. And so we're all kind of running this experiment now uh, and during so many different facets of daily life. I mean, I grew up playing video games uh, with people online that I never met and never would meet. And in some, in some cases, I became uh, real friends with them, and then I would meet them in real life. And and uh, and so we're kind of all we're kind of all playing this game uh, as we as we march, you know, uneasily on into the future. Yeah. But this but this is this is very much its own this is its own story. Uh, and and of course the technology was different at the time. These are two crossed landlines. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's not wholly divorced from our reality. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, what was it like portraying the young Gatsby in The Great Gatsby? <laughs> yeah, that was that was great fun. I really, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I got to work in Australia for that. We're filming at Fox Studios, uh, quite close to where I used to live, and um, and working with Baz Luhrmann and, and DiCaprio, and of course all these amazing people was was uh, was out of this world. Um, but it's, yeah, that, it seems so long ago now. It's hard to recall exactly, but I remember being very excited. It was a blast. And was there anything about the F. Scott Fitzgerald novel and the character Gatsby that inspired you to be part of that production? Oh no, I mean I was just taking an extraordinary opportunity as it came. Of course, I'd read I read the uh, the book and 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 was and am still in love with it. It's one of my favorites, uh, and as, as a de facto American now, <laughs> it's, it's it's well that I feel that way. Um, but uh, no, I just I mean I was never going to pass up an opportunity like that. Um, and so it was. It was just. Uh, it was one of my one of the best experiences I've ever had on a set, honestly. And what was it like playing Leonardo DiCaprio's younger self in the film and interacting with <laughs> him for that, both on and off screen and on the set? Well, I mean, of course, it's uh, it's not been without its social currency. I've been able to walk around and and tell people that I, uh, you know, you know, I played the young uh, the young Leo. <laughs> and so uh, it was kind of uh, it was kind of fun for a while, but uh, more than anything, it was just uh, you know an extraordinary learning experience because you're working with such seasoned professionals. And um, and and Leo himself was always very kind to me. And so was Baz. And so I, I feel like I absorbed a lot of wisdom on that set. Mm. And in terms of your future work, uh, what can you say about expectations as Pip and this Dickens reboot? This is your second classic literary adaptation film. Is there something about classics that draws you to them? Uh, I mean, there. When something is a classic, it's it's often it's a it's a timeless story in one essence or another. Like it embodies 
something about uh, about the human experience uh, that 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 is cross generational, and so there is something beautiful about being connected to that uh, that I don't know the continuity of the human experience. I think that's wonderful, and also it's you get to talk to people of different generations and connect to them through that story because you know every now and again you you make a film that's that's temporally isolated like some modern thing and it, and and, and you know, say you make a movie based on like the hunger games or whatever you try to talk to someone from prior generations about it and then and, and they may not fully identify with it but the classics are there for everyone to enjoy mm-hmm. and so there's, a, there's also a privilege in being able to take part in something like that and, and give it a fresh uh, face i suppose so there's so many layers to it but more than anything you know work is work and i love being on set and are you working on anything next? Anything else? Yeah, so uh, I'm very excited at the moment because uh, uh, I think what might be my favorite film that I've ever done, which was written and directed by some dear friends of mine, and it's called The Duel, something that we shot during COVID. And, oh. uh, and it's something that I connect with really deeply and I'm extremely, extremely proud of. The film is, is about these uh, two best friends who come to blows over a lady, which is a tale as old as time. Uh, and 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 it involves a duel. Okay. And any last word on about him and her? Yeah, I'm I'm very proud of it because it was such a such an unusual experience on set and something that no one had really ever dealt with. And the crew were so accommodating because it was there was obviously there was so much nonsense we had to subject them to, like holding up uh, sheets between myself and and Christina, the actress, and yeah. and uh, <laughs> making sure we weren't in the same hallway at the same time, or, or just ensuring uh. we didn't see each other or say anything to each other, and uh, and so the fact that it's finally available online is uh, is a lovely thing, and then I, I, I hope people go and watch it. And what can you say about why people should see the film? Why people should see the film? Yes. Why you well, recommend I mean, it? <laughs> Yeah, of course. I, I mean, I recommend going and seeing it because I believe the story is beautifully told, and I believe it is, it's, it's a, a really intimate view of uh, the development of a relationship between, between two struggling, lonely people who, who basically only, uh, they can only take uh, pleasure in each other because their lives are falling apart around them. And so more than that even, the fact that we filmed this movie without ever having known each other's names without saying anything to each other that wasn't scripted or improv- improvised dialogue and and that we had never seen each other's faces uh, it, it means that it is it's worth watching purely for the sake of the the experiment of it all because I'll leave it up for the audience to judge but it had a it had a pretty significant impact on the on the sort of chemistry that she and I were able to to form um, and she and I were, were quite good friends now and, and having met each other at the premiere sort of a year or so ago, it was such a strange experience to put a face to this person that I'd built in my head, oh. which is, <laughs> I suppose, what the audience will be doing as well uh, for the first half of the movie anyway. And so I think it's worth watching just because it's never been done before. And, and for me, that's, that's reason enough. But also, it happens to be beautifully written and beautifully shot. The cinematography is, is just is top tier. So give it a look. So, off the record, you did not meet her until the festival? No, that's on the record, my dear, absolutely. Oh, it's on, on the, the record. record. <laughs> because yeah, I thought, on, I on thought the... you don't, don't want people to know what entirely what the film is about. So. Well, I mean, you know, it, 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 I guess suppose it could be considered a spoiler because it, it implies the ending to some degree. Yeah. So if you'd like to, if you want to keep that off the record, I'll leave, I'll leave that up to your discretion, I believe. Oh. But, no, but, no, if you think <laughs> it's on the record, that's fine. I thought that you so, didn't want people to know exactly what the plot is, but if they do, well, what was it like meeting her for the first time? They should just know that uh, <laughs> they should know we filmed everything without, uh, you know, with all these contrivances, yes. which we answered in previous questions. Okay, well, thank you so much, Callan, for calling into our show. Perfect. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Bye now. Appreciate it. And Him and Her is out now in release. This is Comrade Karl Marx. And when I'm visiting the 21st century, I listen to Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You have a world to win. Listeners of the world, unite. 
That's Arts Express with host Prairie Miller, where art meets politics. And if you're down with the status quo, take the local. And we'll go out on the show with the Arts Express screening room, Paintings in Movies, from 2001 A Space Odyssey to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yes, I'm sure of it. What a shame the artist is dead. You'd have convinced him to put a light in that window. We don't need the artist for that. Oh? You don't mean to suggest that... You could do it. With my little paint and brushes. You won't need paint or brushes. What do you mean by that? Come closer to the painting. Have you ever taken a really good close look? I don't mean simply to the point where you can see the swells and little hills and valleys of paint. I mean close enough to get to the very heart of the pigment. It can be done, Mr. Jarvis. Your eye has traveled up this road a thousand times. Now let's travel up it together. All it takes is a little imagination. And you are a man of imagination. See how the road yawns out invitingly beyond the frame. Feel the cold dampness of those walls. Brush past the dead, dry fingers of that tree. Push through those mysterious banks of whirling mist. Ah, see how fresh and bright the flowers look. <laughs> Nothing very mysterious about them. Ah, but Mr. Jarvis, now this is what I really want you to look at. Would you step a little closer, please? That's it. Now, just look at that door. You feel that all that I would have to do is to raise my stick and knock, and it would sound like... Painting and film have a complicated relationship. We're very familiar with scenes which lift things from real-world art. Elements of colour or composition. Costume. Though they have to account for a, a three-dimensional world, placed in front of a lens, lit by real light. Films have to fiddle with the image to fit the aspect ratio. And, of course, they add emotion. Jean-Luc Godard's passion is about a director struggling with all this. The stillness of art and the messiness of life. Referencing paintings can have mixed results, often depending on how recognisable or well-known the original is. Sometimes it's not that obvious, but other times the director's definitely hoping the audience gets the reference. Paintings are also a handy way to create a sense of period, but blatant anachronism can be just as effective. Referencing paintings can be a kind of shorthand, or it can be deeply intertextual, playing tricks with the audience's memory. It's inevitable that one visual language would steal from another, but we tend to talk much less about how paintings are used in movies, either as visual aids or as integral elements of the story. This can be divided into two basic categories. Paintings from our real world made by real artists and fictional paintings created solely and specifically for production. But as we will see, the line between the two can be just as hazy as the line between fiction and reality. More than any other genre, film noir of the 1940s had a morbid fascination with paintings, specifically with portraits. Laura. A detective falls for a portrait of the woman whose murder he's investigating. The director, Otto Preminger, matches their eye lines 
places them in the same shot as if they were in the same room, but it wasn't a painting. The prop was a photograph touched up with oils and varnish. Laura was an illusion. Many films of the same era would use the same trick, but some did employ real artists. The strange amateur paintings in Fritz Lang's Scarlet Street were painted by the equally strange Hollywood caricaturist and alleged forger, John Decker. They were later sent to the Museum of Modern Art for an exhibition in March of 1946, one of the first times movie paintings went on the road. The more successful uses of paintings in cinema tend to explore paintings' artificiality, the gap between world and image. One of the best is Lang's The Woman in the Window. A man sees a portrait in a shop window. Then he sees the reflection of the sitter standing on the street behind him. For a moment, they exist in the same space. What follows is a doomy meditation on the perils of confusing art and life, of trying to get them to align, to exist in the same frame. The portrait was painted by Paul Lewis Clemens, who mostly made derivative Renoir-ish portraits of celebrities. The Coen brothers Barton Fink would recycle the mysterious painting trope from the 1940s, or at least a cheap motel version of it. Fink is a screenwriter determined to write something real. But he's so cut off from reality, he's incapable of recognising it. At the end of the film, he finds himself on a beach with a woman exactly like the figure in a painting from his hotel room. Are you in pictures? He asks. Don't be silly, she replies. The mysterious portrait was essentially imported into Hollywood from Gothic literature. But while books don't have to actually show their fictional paintings, films do. Albert Lewin's 1945 adaption of The Picture of Dorian Gray. The film is mostly in black and white, but switches to three-strip technicolour for key shots of the painting. Gray's portrait ages and decays, while he remains unchanged through the years, upturning the normal relationship of painting and sitter. Henrik Medina's picture of the youthful Gray is a pretty decent stab at 19th century portrait painting, so it's all the more shocking when Ivan Albright's nightmarish modernism appears. The camera starts in close up and pulls back like a shriek. Albright was like a movie director himself, building elaborate sets, costumes, and props from which to paint. The painting has remained on display at the Art Institute of Chicago. While Cindy Sherman recently dug out Medina's young Dorian for an exhibition at New York's Swiss Institute. Movie paintings cast a spell. They have their own unique aura. Albert Lewin later directed Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, for which Man Ray supplied a painting and a chess set. But perhaps he also influenced that film's lucid dreaminess. A dreaminess which also seems to owe something to Paul Delvaux, proving once again that surrealism is way better suited to film rather than painting. Lewin later directed The Moon and Sixpence, a story based on the life of Gauguin. He seemed to have a feeling for paintings. Susan Fellerman called him the Botticelli of Hollywood. More overtly supernatural is William Diatele's Portrait of Jenny, based on Robert Nathan's novella of 1940. A struggling artist meets a girl. She seems to age every time he sees her. He paints her picture. He becomes successful. But the girl vanishes when the painting is complete. Like the picture of Dorian Gray, Portrait of Jenny's final shots show the painting 
in technical. But only after an astonishing sequence where the film turns green. Then sepia, tinted like a silent movie. It's as if we've come out the other end, out of a dream and into reality. They are two people who were lonely in life, she tells him. They should have been together. Time made an error. It's the kind of thing a painting might say. The portrait of Jenny was painted by the academic painter, Robert Brackman. Somewhere between noir and gothic melodrama, we find Alfred Hitchcock's 1940 adaption of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. The ghost of the former Mrs. de Winter hangs over the unnamed heroine. Her things haunt the house. There's a costume ball. The jealous housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, suggests she should wear a dress from one of the portraits to surprise her new husband. It goes horribly wrong. Rebecca de Winter wore it the night she drowned. It's a relatively early film from Hitchcock, but he would return to people playing sick games with paintings nearly 20 years later. As the 40s moved into the 50s, the mystery portrait began to feel like a cliché, but Hitchcock would return again and again to paintings as storytelling devices, using them in surprising and inventive ways. The Trouble with Harry, an atypical light-hearted comedy, but death is still at the centre of it all. Sam Marlowe is an amateur artist. The owner of the village post office tries to sell his paintings by the roadside. I don't understand your work, I think it's beautiful, she says. It's delivered, wonderfully, as a single sentence. Movies often get humour from showing the work of amateurs. That's beautiful. I like this one. The dog, one dog goes one way and the other dog goes the other way. But the paintings in The Trouble with Harry were made by a real artist, John Ferron, an early member of the New York School of Abstract Expressionists. Movie critics referred to the painter in the film as being hopelessly fifth-rate. Hitchcock would have loved the irony. While it does play out the required upside-down painting joke, The Trouble with Harry is a rare example of abstract paintings being used in movies for anything more than cheap laughs. Sam goes out to sketch the landscape. It's only after a while he realises that the two lumps he's been drawing are the feet of a corpse. The body itself becomes an abstract problem to deal with throughout the film, its personhood quickly evaporating. Hitchcock chose Ferrin's paintings to reflect the autumn colours of the Vermont landscape. But they also suggest a wildly different inner life, something in the people and the place which is unquantifiable. Much of it takes place out in the woods, a place away from the community, where anything can happen. There's also the suggestion that the abstract thinker, the artist, is the only one capable of drawing the threads of Harry's life and death together, turning them into something new. Marlowe is the name of a famous fictional detective. It's as if the cynical private eye of the 1940s has become a dreamer, someone who reshapes the facts, reshapes the world to make it fit. Confronted with the drawing that proves he saw Harry's body, Sam simply redraws it. You just destroyed legal evidence says the lawman. No, you misinterpreted my art, says Marlowe. But Hitchcock would also investigate the dangers of dreaming, of following an image or an idea at the expense of reality. Vertigo. His 1958 masterpiece would bring the mystery portrait of Noir back out for one last showing. A woman, Madeline, becomes obsessed with a painting she acts as if possessed by the woman in the portrait, Carlotta Valdez. Scotty, the private detective sent to follow Madeline, becomes obsessed with her in turn. 
Madeline wears the same necklace, buys the same flowers, styles her hair to match Carlotta's. A dream sequence designed by John Ferron, the artist who made the paintings for The Trouble with Harry, and who also painted the portrait of Carlotta. Scotty's obsession with Madeline is inseparable from Madeline's obsession with the painting. It's all part of her allure. Scotty's friend, Midge, deep fakes herself into the portrait. He doesn't find it funny. When Madeline dies, Scotty tries to bring her back in the image of another woman, Julie. He changes her clothes, her hair and makeup, calling the shots like an art director, but it's a project and a relationship doomed from the start. Madeline was a dream image, a ghost, a fantasy, a made-up anachronistic painting by a real artist, which is also at the centre of a web of intrigue, obsession and death. The portrait of Carlotta might be the ultimate movie painting, right down to the fact that the painting itself is a bit rubbish. In some ways, Vertigo is a bleak retelling of Portrait of Jenny, but its lineage stretches all the way back to Lang's Woman in the Window. Middle-aged men trying to recapture the brief moment where world and image aligned. Unlike the creepiness of Scotty stalking Madeline at the Legion of Honour, the picture gallery can also be a place to meet cute. All the Vermeers in New York is a charming mirroring of art and life, but it's also a deeply sad film. The close-ups and longing looks normally used for romantic scenes are given over to people looking at pictures on the wall. It shows looking at painting as something intimate, more intimate than the characters ever get. They are too wrapped up in themselves or in art. The man sees the Vermeer in the woman, thinks she'll offer the same escape from his empty life that the paintings do, but she doesn't. The gallery scene shows the transmission of feeling from painting to person, and ultimately the vast amount of space between them. It plays out the entire drama of the film in microcosm. Paintings in movies tend to go hand in hand with doomed romance. Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir takes its title from a Frogonard painting, which features briefly in the narrative. Julie and Anthony are in a toxic relationship. Julie's a film student, naive, unsure of herself. Anthony uses heroin, lies about it, steals from her. Julie says the girl in the painting looks sad. Anthony says she looks determined. Julie later finds out that Anthony overdosed in a public bathroom at the Wallace Collection, the gallery where the souvenir hangs. The film ends with Julie sad, but determined. The souvenir echoes Frogonard's painting in its pearlescent cinematography, finding something of 18th century France in late 1980s London. Based on a scene from Rousseau's 1671 novel, Julie, or The New Heloise, the painting loops around itself elliptically. The S she's carving might as well be a figure of eight, or an F for Frogonard. Like the lapdog, it's a symbol of fidelity. But how loyal is she being to herself? She's become a formal profile, like a silhouette in a locket. The tree curls back on itself, as if to enclose her in the picture's shrinking universe. Is she sealing her fate? Or saying goodbye? Letting go? Walking away? Hogg's film teases out these ambiguities through its own narrative exploring the painful payoffs between art and honesty in one of the most thematically congruent uses of painting in cinema.
It's also where movie paintings start to be less about men's obsession with paintings of women. From the teens and into the 2020s, paintings have made their way back into movies, but with the gender dynamics constantly shifting and reshaping themselves. Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. A scene from every artist's worst nightmare. A woman has to explain her work to her boyfriend's parents. The father says he likes paintings that look like photographs. She says she tries to paint interiority into her landscape's joy or sadness. He asks how a landscape can be sad if there's no people in it being sad. The film answers that it can be very, very sad indeed. I'm Thinking of Ending Things is a rare instance of landscape painting rather than portrait being at the heart of the mystery. Landscapes in film tell us that it's the world which is not what it seems, that it's the people on the other side of the painting who aren't what they appear to be. She finds exhibition posters in the basement. They look exactly like her paintings, but there's someone else's name on them. She quotes Oscar Wilde, it's tragic how few people ever possess their souls before they die. Nothing is more rare in any man, says Emerson, than an act of his own. It's quite true. Most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions, their life is a mimicry, their passions a quotation. She finds not-so-great copies of the paintings from the posters. They're signed by her boyfriend, Jake. I'm thinking of ending things turns a series of inversions on the mystery painting trope continually pulling the rug out from under us. We assume the paintings were created for the film, that they are made up, but they aren't. She is. The most elaborately staged made-up painting in cinema shows up in 2021's The French Dispatch, an anthology of New Yorker-inspired magazine articles. In a 30-minute segment titled the concrete masterpiece. It presents the complete biography of Moses Rosenthaler, an artist of the fictional French splatter school and inmate at the local prison. The director, Wes Anderson, the great cinematic lover of stuff, seems just as interested in all the things that orbit painting, lecture halls, modernist museum buildings, posters, books, invitation cards, weaving in real-world things, like the font from the Guggenheim, and an homage to the lectures of Rosamund Bernier. The French Dispatch also, again, uses the black and white to colour reveal for the paintings. Anderson got the idea from Emile D'Antonio's great 1973 documentary, Painter's Painting, a film which finds a subtle vein of deadpan humour in the gap between the art and the stylishly drab oddballs who make it. Do you, do you consider yourself a painterly painter? Very much, yeah. No. What does painterly mean? Well, that, that you can see it's done with a brush. Anderson had Rosenthaler's story rattling around his head for a decade. But it needed all the details, all the style, to sell it. A film about style and substance, about style as substance. The French Dispatch ends up being truer than most artist biopics. It even has time for a still life with this literal light bulb moment. Still life is a rare genre in movie paintings. Mainstream films prefer people and movement but Anderson also loves stasis and things. Artist Sandro Kopp developed hundreds of paintings for the film. They've been shown in multiple exhibitions. Kopp said he's probably going to continue to explore the kind of painting he made for the film. Surely, the first time the requirements of a movie plot have diverted an artist's practice in the real world. The French Dispatch subverts expectations in that the authoritarian muse, Simone, calls the shots, takes charge. She's the prison guard who also runs the hobby club. Simone is both his jailer 
and his salvation. Yet, it's still the story of a man fixated on painting a woman. Celine Sciamma's portrait of a lady on fire totally upturns the conventions of cinematic portrait painting. A young painter, Marianne, arrives at an old house off the coast of Brittany. Heloise, the daughter of a countess, has refused to have her portrait done. The last painter, a man, left in defeat. Posing as her walking companion, Marianne paints her in secret at first. But this also ends in disaster. Only when Heloise consents to sit for her portrait, studying the painter as intently as the painter studies her, do things improve dramatically. Eloise is one of the few women in movie paintings to look back. It's almost a Beauty and the Beast story. Eloise embittered, cold, like her drafty house. Marianne bringing life and warmth while the painting lasts. The film continues the tradition of movie paintings being a bit off. The brushwork is extremely free for the 1770 setting, a little too angular and graphic, the colours a bit too shallow. But this is an intentional part of the film's alternative feminist history. Skiyama said she wanted a contemporary artist from the beginning, not a copyist. The anachronism makes them pop. They are paintings which are somewhat forbidden, which cannot be. Even the cinematography references painting slightly later than the time in which it's set, synthesizing elements from Friedrich Corbe. It's as if the characters' inner lives have a wild romanticism, but that they are trapped in a restrictive past which holds them back. The painting has to be done in time for Heloise's arranged marriage. It can't last forever. They recite the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, the fable of images and lost loves which haunts Vertigo and Portrait of Jenny. But unlike the obsessive men in those films, they make peace with their separation. Heloise takes control, tells her Orpheus to turn around, let go. They'll have to be content to live with the memory, the image. Ironically, all the portraits in the film were painted from photographs. Artist Helene Delmar later showed them at Gallery Joseph in Paris, and she also made additional paintings for the Criterion edition of the film, working more freely in her own manner. Recent years have seen the biggest burst of paintings in movies since the 1940s, which makes sense with issues of identity and representation at the centre of culture. Like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Nia de Costa's 2021 remake of The Candyman would use paintings to ask questions about what stories we tell and who gets to tell them. The film follows a young artist as he navigates the uneasy world of white gallery audiences and depictions of black trauma. Paintings by Cameron Spratley and Sherwin Ovid show his unravelling psyche. Here he's filmed from below, like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. They are the most overtly horrific movie paintings since Alvin Albright's portrait of Dorian Gray in 1945. But movie paintings don't have to be gruesome to be disturbing. They can show how a character sees the world, how they see themselves, and sometimes there's nothing to see at all. The most haunting paintings in all cinema hang on the walls of a hotel room at the other side of the universe. They shouldn't be there, but they are. Like the hotel room in Barton Fink, the hotel room in 2001 Space Odyssey has no windows. Paintings take their place. Along with the 18th century French furniture, 
They are a comfort and consolation for the stranded astronaut. Stanley Kubrick called it a human zoo. For once, the composite, anachronistic qualities of movie painting are a part of the story. They become diegetic qualities, rather than qualities we should ignore. The props themselves are composites of various real-world Rococo paintings. Most identifiable are two versions of Francois Bauch's La Tendre Pastorale. Why these pictures? Perhaps because there's an inherently meaningless genericism to them in the first place, a certain emptiness, and yet there's still the need to reach out, the need for contact, communication. Painted by mysterious hands from fragments of half-remembered images, the paintings in 2001 speak the language of all movie paintings, but in the background, silently watching. As with all movie paintings, they are a lot like the paintings in our world, but they're not. They come from somewhere else, somewhere we can never go. And thank you, Jamie Lamond and Samuel O'Donnell for that self-described obsessively discussed painting nerds exquisite presentation on their channel at YouTube. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.